We're in a series called Killing It. And uh, this is part two. And today, how ironic with what's going on in our world and in our lives that this would be our subject today. It's about relational conflict. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. Here's what Paul writes. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you try to agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's cell group have informed me there are quarrels among you. <laughs> Can you imagine? What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Somebody else says, I follow T.D. Jakes. Another says, I follow, uh, who's that guy? Huh? Stephen Furtick, uh, whoever. Okay. <laughs> I hear all these names, okay? Another one says, I follow Cephas, and another, I follow Christ. He's the religious one. And then Paul says, come on, gang. Is Jesus divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Was T.D. Jakes or Stephen Furtick or Rick Godwin or anybody you happen to like, were, were they crucified for you? I don't think so. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except he said Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I'll tell you why that's important in just a second. I baptized some from the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Good news. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Those have special meanings in just a moment. I'll tell you why Paul says what he does like he does, and it might be a first for some of you. I want to talk about a terribly important subject. What makes for relational breakdown? We all suffer from it, or we all have. What's the answer? It's been a problem for a long, long time, and it ain't going to go away anytime soon. In his farewell address to our nation, when he voluntarily relinquished power, which was unprecedented in that time, George Washington pleaded with our nation not to become divided, not to get separated and factional. He talked about the danger of a partisan spirit. I wonder what old Georgie would say today. Progressive versus populist, red state versus blue state, left versus right, global versus nationalist. Sheesh, I got a good idea what his reaction would be. Wouldn't it be great if we could just make everybody not like us or who disagrees with us to just move away? No. The correct answer is no, that is not the solution. Maybe it's just too hard for our country. Maybe the real place to build relational harmony or community and love is at the workplace, on your job. Except you might know the number one complaint in a workplace is people. Broken relationships, office politics, turf wars, favoritism, incompetent coworkers, and bad bosses. Gee, well, maybe that's not the right place. Maybe, the, maybe the, the, the pressure of having to make money is just too great. Maybe, maybe the only truly stress-free, genuinely peace-filled community that you could ever expect would be with your relatives and in-laws. <laughs> I don't think so, right? Where can you find a place everybody just gets along? 
There are no factions, no divisions, no complaints, no grumbling, no small-mindedness. There are no petty quarrels, no egos battling. Nope, not even in the church because people bring that stuff into the church with them. See, we, in life, we're just broken people, messed up, sinful people, and we need, we need heart surgery. We, we need a transplant. I'm telling you, there's no law that can fix my heart. No, it cannot. I'm, I, it's got to be right here. In the, out of the heart are the issues of life. That's what Scripture says, out of the heart. You, you watch people messed up. Look, if I could see inside, I could see a really screwed up heart. And Jesus can fix your heart. That's a good thing. So this topic's huge for everybody in our nation and in our world. This is a letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a lot like us in America. It was a culture rebuilt from destruction by Rome. It generated unprecedented wealth and enormously competitive people with lots of folks trying to climb the ladder and status obsessed. Get the picture? A lot like today. Paul brings to that culture this message of Jesus, which is pretty radical to us and to that day. So in these words, he lays out the real reason why he's writing to Corinth because he has an issue he's trying to address. And the reason is they're having relational meltdown with factions, divisions, and quarrels. So here's what he said. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. He's using family language now. Did you know that? That when you become, when, when Jesus accepts you as his son, when you put your faith in Jesus, I have to call you brother. I don't care what your race is, your nationality is, or your political affiliation. If the Father calls you son, i got to call you brother. That's a Bible fact, for God's sake. Okay, so he uses family language. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, I, agree, I charge that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there not be divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's small group, have informed me there are quarrels among you. I want you to imagine you're in Corinth when, you, when this letter is being read. And, and Paul starts, started the church in Corinth. That's, that's the one he started. And he's kind of taking them to the woodshed as a church. The church is just getting started and already they're splintering into factions and divisions. So how does Paul know they're having relational problems? Some people from Chloe's house group have told, told him. Yeah, and I'll say a word about Chloe. We don't know a whole lot about her. We know she's a woman. She's the head of her own household, something of a rarity in the ancient world. She's very wealthy, and that's rare in this emerging church. She is crazy about Jesus. She has put her property, her household, and her wealth at the disposal of the emerging church. She's thought to be from Ephesus, so she may be one of those who made her money trading from Asia because Ephesus is in the continent of Asia through Corinth. In other words, she's a crazy rich Asian. <laughs> I think it's kind of cool that there's one of those in the New Testament. Come on. Remember, most people in the ancient world were illiterate. So Paul's letter wouldn't be read by every individual. It would have been read out loud to the church from one of the leaders. And these are the words that come from Paul. He says, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among you. Now, at this point, everybody who's not in Chloe's cell group is looking at the people who are 
in Chloe's small group thinking, are you kidding me? Now, who, who, why would you tell on us to Paul? Why would you do that? Now we're going to get criticized in the Bible. People will be saying bad things about us for thousands of years because you little tattletales went to the apostle Paul. Well, let me say a word about that. Well, thank God somebody from Chloe's house spoke up and said something. Do you realize this letter is a classic treasure for humanity and has been for a couple of thousand years? Now, it might not have been written if somebody from Chloe's house hadn't said, hey, Paul, we're having problems and we aren't resolving them. We need help. Maybe the people from Chloe's house should have gone directly to the people causing the problem. Okay, maybe they did. We don't know. And maybe it didn't do any good. Sometimes that happens. All I know is that relational problems always occur and they never get cleaned up unless somebody has the courage to take the heat for pointing them out. See, more people would rather hear a lie than the truth. It's true. See, the way it works is it's always messy. Trying to deal with relational conflict is always messy. And very often what people do, instead of acknowledging the real problem, they focus on the process. Well, you didn't say it the right way. You didn't go to the right person. And process is almost never perfect. The real question is, am I going to respond with an open heart when somebody names the problem? That's the question. Do you have anybody from Chloe's house in your life? When somebody from Chloe's house speaks truth about me, do I listen? Am I open-hearted? Or do I get defensive and stubborn about it? Well, that's what's going on in Corinth. Paul then describes how the relationship breakdown is happening. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. You are carnal. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not carnal? Are you not acting like mere humans? When one says, I follow Paul, another says, Apollos, are you not being carnal human beings? That is, you're operating apart from God's power in your flesh, and, and God's direction has no bearing on your life. People are dividing the church for crying out loud over which teacher they like best. Give me a break. Paul started the church. And sometime later, Apollos comes in, gives his life to Jesus, and apparently he's a great speaker, a riveting orator. And he's described in the book of Acts by a word that means educated or eloquent or both. Now, we don't know what Paul spoke like. It's very interesting that in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes this, For some say, my letters are weighty and forceful, but in person... I'm unimpressive, and my speaking amounts to nothing. <laughs> How do you think Paul feels about that? Yeah, Paul may have been a boring speaker. I know this. One time in the book of Acts, he's speaking in an upper room past midnight, and there were people gathered together, and a kid named Eutychus is sitting in a window listening, and it says that as Paul went on and on and on, some of you were members of that church, and on and on for three hours, Right, brothers, some of them? Yeah, dear God, are they, your wife will go through menopause before they ever get through. I've been in those churches. That's awful. Eutychus falls asleep and falls out of the window. Now, that's depressing to have that happen when you're speaking. Eutychus falls out of the window, lands on the ground, and dies. Paul 
your talks aren't killing it, they're killing people. Yeah. Paul goes downstairs, picks his kid up in his arms, and brings him back to life. So Paul does have that going for him, which is kind of handy, I think. You know, every speaker wrestles with that. How do I compare to others? Many years ago, a young pastor is leaving his first church, and a woman is saying goodbye, and she's just in tears. She's in tears because he's leaving, and this feeds his ego. So he says to her, oh, honey, don't be sad. I'm sure the next pastor will be even better. And she says, that's what everybody keeps saying, but they keep getting worse. <laughs> yeah, well, that comparison thing goes on and on and on. So some people say, I prefer Peter. Some people say, I follow Jesus. Of course, that's the churchy thing to say. Yeah, of course, it's right, but you can give a right answer with the wrong heart and do more damage than if you were wrong. The surface problem is factions and division, but there's a much deeper problem, and that gets to you and me and why there are factions in this world and how, if ever, they're going to get healed. Remember the gospel, Jesus, and the, the life of the cross are brand new to a Corinthian here in this. It's brand new. But comparing and wanting to climb the ladder and wanting to have status and wanting to be in the best group and to be on the inside, that's not new to Corinth. And boy, that's not new to us in American culture. Paul is actually battling a mindset and a cultural practice that involved speakers coming to Corinth. And rhetoric, the ability to command language in order to gain a hearing, was richly valued and richly rewarded. By the time the Roman Empire arose, the ability to use language had morphed into a kind of traveling celebrity speakers who were known as sophists. And that comes from Sophia, the Greek word for wisdom. When Paul uses the term wisdom, he talks about the wisdom or the eloquence that these sages, these sophists, would use to gain status for themselves. Now, by Paul's day, a sophist was like a, a performance virtuoso with dazzling verbal skills who could please an audience and win applause, and they would enter into competition with each other. Corinth had a 14,000-seat auditorium, and it was a natural mecca for these entertainers, the kind of like American Idol for Corinth. And these guys were kind of a combination of hip-hop artists and rock stars in their day, and they could dazzle people with their verbal skills. They could charm you, alarm you. They could make a crowd jump to its feet and cheer them on. They were rock stars, and they mastered the art of self-promotion. They built their brand. They extended their platform, but they did it to win glory, wealth, fame, and honor for themselves. Eloquence and verbal skills were a means towards getting status. So the way the game worked was these rock stars, these sophists, used their artistry to get rich. And that's what status was in their day. And that is precisely why Paul won't do it. He could, but he won't. He actually earns his own money making tents, which is an insult to wealthy people who want to sponsor him. But he does it so he can be free to speak the gospel with no strings attached. By the way, everybody pays everybody to pay, do a commercial, even if they don't use it. Lobbyists pay politicians, even though they're not for it. Great sums of money to endorse something or to give them favorable advantage on a contract, which is why we have to pay exorbitant prices on everything because it's a payoff and it goes on 
everywhere, with all the time. What's your price? How much would it take to buy you out, to buy integrity from you, to buy character from you? Boy, in our day, this is kind of rare. We got the best government money can buy. <laughs> Don't kid yourself. Even when a person goes up there with good intentions, it doesn't take long for that toxic culture to invade them. And that money starts pouring, and unfortunately, and many of them come to a disastrous end. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sham. It, happens to, it can happen on a low level in a, in a state. It can happen nationally. It happens internationally. So be careful. So he wanted to say, I want to preach the gospel, and I want no strings attached in this crazy culture, so I'm just going to make my money from tents so I don't have to sway my words and uh, uh, entreat you to please you wealthy people who would normally support me. So he's, he's just doing everything opposite right now. He wants, to, he wants to challenge those wealthy people who have resources who were not caring for the poor. The sophists used their artistry to get rich. They competed to see who could get the most followers, and they called them long before, uh, before the disciples. They called them disciples, their follower, their crowd, their group, their gang. They were called disciples. When some Corinthians start this new thing called the church, and Paul comes along to speak to them, he has a remarkable message they've never heard before, and they think, remember, they think, I know what this is. I've heard this before. He's one of them, one of these sages, these sophists that travels as a good orator. And Paul has to say, no, no, you don't get it at all. You have no idea. That's not who I am. So he comes and he speaks and he has this remarkable message about the gospel and good news. But he does these odd things. He doesn't get money. He works making tents. He says, Apollos is not my rival. I'm not in competition with him. He's my brother. Everybody who's helped by him is a win for me. See, to treat the cross and the church as a vehicle for self-promotion goes on in the ministry right now. For self-promotion or reputation or self-seeking or the gratification of your ego or, or of anybody else who does what I do or what somebody else in the church leadership role does is to turn the cross upside down and empty the church of everything it's supposed to offer. And by the way, could we just say in this church, it's Jesus and the cross that matters above everything else? Can we say in this church, we're not going to have disunity over stupid stuff? Come on, grow up. That we will not have disunity over preference for different preachers or preference for different styles of music or preference for different instruments or different styles of clothing or the use or non-use of different kinds of technology. That we won't have disunity over any individual's pet idea, pet program, partisan polypolitics or furniture or formal versus informal or planned service versus spontaneous or young versus old. Now, whether you're in the hip category or the hip replacement category, we'll find our unity in the person of Jesus and the way of the cross. Could we just agree on that as a church? It's so ironic. Jesus came as the Messiah. But the problem was everybody thought, hmm, I know what that must be. Power, success. That's the dazzling ability to control. And Jesus had to teach everybody, no, no, it's the way of humbling, self-sacrificing love. And eventually it killed him on the cross. So Paul has to figure out, how am I going to re-educate these Corinthians? 
in that way of humble, self-sacrificing servant, low-status love. And it killed him. At Corinth, they could turn anything, even good things, into a source of division because all this ego stuff gets involved. Paul goes on, is Christ divided? Now, the answer to that should be no. That's why the unity of the church and the oneness that starts with our relationships and our care for each other by living as servants should be the signature of the church. Is Christ divided? We are the body of Christ, and we are not to tolerate divisions among us. Now, the world will, the culture will, politics will, but we're the church of Jesus Christ. We are not to do that, not by race, not by gender, not by any other ideology. We are not to be divided. I, I just hate that. You know, I'm a white guy, but I don't think of a white church. We got black leaders in this church, Hispanic leaders in this church. Probably got more Hispanic than we have Caucasian. I came out of my mother's womb without my consent. I didn't ask to be born. Nobody, I didn't ask what family. I definitely would have made a change there. But I didn't ask to be born in South Carolina. I didn't ask to be born in America. You didn't ask to be born to your family or in your race or gender. You had no control over it. Why would I beat you up over what you have nothing to do with? I, I'm just privileged to know Jesus loves me and I have a few friends from every culture. And if you can love me, you are amazing. <laughs> I treasure my friends. I'm probably not easy to love. I don't know because I don't play games with one group versus another group. You know, we've all been messed with by our culture, our race, our family, our friends, and from wherever we come from. And you can't fix that with a sermon. You can't fix that quick. There's no micro. It takes some years of God washing you with the water of the word, good examples, a whole lot of repentance. It's a process, but you can't do it in one quick fix or one law. You can pass a law against racism. It didn't change anybody who's a racist heart. Only Jesus can change that heart. Yeah. He got to get me out of being a victim too. I'm an overcomer. I, I was talking to uh, one of our beautiful ladies, Sandra Steen, who li lives and has her own business, very successful consultant business in Houston, Texas, came out of this church. And I remember in the early days, she was concerned. She said, well, I'm a black woman, single, unmarried, and it's very hard in the corporate. I said, stop it. Stop it right now. You're jumping right down into a negative thought process, a victim. I said, you're a born-again believer. You're a daughter of the Most High God. You're a new creation. You have the favor of God over you. Act like it. Talk like it. And she went on to make a very nice living helping a lot of people. And it's been our privilege to be friends for 25 years or something like that. See, you, you, first you have to know who you are. And God will define that, not my parents or whatever. Yeah, I can't help it. So I don't want to build a white church, a black church, Hispanic church. Gag me. I think that it's the color, the diversity that makes something spicy to taste good. I love the colors. I love the different. You don't have to shave your head, get a man's purse, a V-neck T-shirt, shoot a few little steroids and be hip. You can, you can wear a suit. You can be hip-hop like Nate. You can. I don't care. Just, just, be, just be you. I like you. If you want to wear your Nigerian dress, I love you. I love it. I love the color. If you want to wear your big hat, wear your big hat. That's cool. I don't mind that. I, I, I'm trying to say churches are built on some of the stupidest stuff. 
that doesn't matter in eternity at all. And he says, was Paul crucified for you? No, Jesus was. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize but a few of you. Now, why is he getting into that? Church people were starting to use who they got baptized by as a way of saying, check me out. I got status because he's my guy. I'm connected with him. He baptized me. Who'd you get baptized by? Like that matters. It doesn't matter at all. It's amazing how, how far we've come, you know. For 2,000 years, churches and whole denominations have fought and split over baptism, for crying out loud. Now, Paul, he took baptism very seriously. You should. I do as well. It was a very courageous act, particularly then. And a lot of times when you got baptized in that world, it meant you would be cut off from your family, disowned, because religion was basically a tribal and family thing, and there would be tremendously high cost, financial cost, opportunity cost, relational cost. It, in some places, you could be murdered. It was stepping into a new way of life, identifying with Jesus. It's a very powerful moment. If, if you follow Jesus and you've never been baptized, I hope you'll take that step. Jesus commanded it. Jesus did it. It's believers. Bad. It doesn't save you. It's for a believer. And I'll tell you why in a moment. That is something you'll remember the rest of your life. And buddy, I'll cheer you on. But what Paul is saying, I only baptized a couple of guys. I can't even remember one of them. And the reason he says that is he's saying, I'm not baptizing to build my brand, to gain status. It's not about extending my platform because he knew that's what they were doing. The main thing that happens in baptism, by the way, is I die. My ego dies. He says, don't you know that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now, pause a minute. Baptism is a picture of death, burial through the water, and resurrection to new life. So at the cross, when I accept Jesus, he judged me, killed me for my sin. I was crucified with Christ spiritually. So my old man, who is sinful, at enmity with God, is judged. Jesus paid that price for me. He took the judgment and took the death. And then I'm buried with him in death. Now my old man, that old Adamic nature, has now been cut off in a spiritual circumcision. In the Old Testament, they cut off flesh, very painful. And then in the New Testament, water baptism was where your old man, that old carnal nature, that was cut off and buried. And a lot of people are born again, but they're walking around with that old corrupting flesh on them, and you become an easier target for the enemy to work through you. You need to follow the Lord knowing why you're doing what you're doing in a baptism. So I'm, I'm a, I am not the same guy that went down that's coming up. I'm now being transformed into this new creation. See? So there's, there's, there's there, something happens spiritually when you obey the Lord. It's not a dead ceremony. Something actually happens. It's a spiritual cutting away of this old nature in me. And it's my old nature that's racist and bigoted and prejudiced and angry and hostile and addictive and self-seeking. That's that old nature. Yeah. And it's lustful. It's whatever you want to think that's bad. I want that sucker cut off from me. Oh, he rises up every now and then <laughs> when I drive. For me, for me particularly, I notice that corrupting old grave robber tries to come up out of the grave, but I have to remind myself I've been crucified with Christ and just get myself peaceful 
and uh, think of other things besides murder. You know, it is. <laughs> no, I know you don't have those thoughts. Certainly not. No, I realize that. So this is now what points to the secret of community that our world needs so desperately. The only way relationships can actually get healed. Contrary to convention, this, this may shock you, but this ought to wake you up. Contrary to conventional wisdom, unity and harmony and community are not a product of being with the people who are like me, who have all been educated like me, who often think like me. What kills relationships are not differences, and we think, if I just had the same ideology, if we all had the same politics, if we all had the same identity, or we all had the same culture, or if we all had the same race, or if we could all educate people about those differences, wow, it would make everything okay. Oh, really? Okay, then try a little experiment. Get a whole group of people together who are in the same political party, have the same ideology, the same education, the same culture, the same language, the same race, even in the same gender, and see if you get peace. I don't care if you go to an all-black church, all-Hispanic church, all-white church. They are divisions and factions in them. It is nonsense to believe that if we were all one thing, there wouldn't be any division. Nonsense. It's, it's, it's everywhere because it's in here. It's in everybody, see? The problem is not differences of opinion. It's brokenness of the will. It's the stubborn, self-seeking, me first, I gotta be right ego. It's the evil in me and you to will the bad towards somebody. That's why what people need and what relationships need is to go to the cross. I mean, kill it. At the cross, I died to my need to get my own way, to the way I sin and damage other people, people I even want to love, and I come alive to God's love. See, when you go to a cross, you're killing something. Paul said, I die daily. You have to, because that old nature wants to come right back out of the grave. See, I die daily. This is totally different. Wouldn't that heal a lot of people, a lot of relationships, a lot of marriages, a lot of the stuff going on in our nation between people. Nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to kill you, but nobody wants to die. <sighs> Community always begins with self-giving love. Every family begins that way. A mother gives nine months of her life and her body to make a tiny little person. God's family begins with self-giving love. God so loved the world, he gave. Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He would be lifted up on a cross. What a strange idea to the Corinthians. I'm going to heal this broken, sorry, bleeding world and all of its violence and hatred, not with a new educational movement, not with a new program, not by starting the perfect country with the perfect political system. I'm going to die. I'm going to die on a cross and heal fractured humanity. See, what a strange idea. Who would think that up? Yet he was right. Whatever you think about God or the supernatural or faith, whatever you think is a matter of historical fact, he died on a cross and that gave birth to this community called the church, the likes of which had never been seen before. Nobody had ever even thought it up. The ancient Romans didn't even know what category to put the church in. Was it like a religion? They didn't know because there had never been anything like it. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, give me a break. Nobody promoted that. And that's animated this movement for centuries. There's not a person for whom Jesus did not die. 
Who thinks up something like that? That's what Paul knows, this strange death that brings life. That's why he writes, Christ didn't send me to baptize. It means he didn't send me to build my brand, to climb my own ladder, but to preach the good news. The availability of life now with God. Not with wisdom and eloquence in a way that will make me look like somebody, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. So how in the world can a cross, a means of execution, have power because it's the plan, the symbol, the vessel, the vehicle, the expression of the suffering, self-giving love of our God. How do I save my life? Lose it. How do I get ahead? Go last. How do I become great? Serve. How do I get rich? Give. How do I get even? Forgive. What a strange idea. Kill it. Kill it. Take it to the cross and die. Gang, this is where it gets personal. Whatever you do to harm relationships, whatever you do to hurt people or harm people or create divisions or create enmity, wherever there's brokenness, bring it to the cross. Maybe you use people. Maybe you flatter people. Maybe you gossip. Maybe you're selfish. Maybe you get impatient. Maybe you get really angry. Will you kill it at the cross? Lay your brokenness down and receive new life at the cross. Nail your anger there. Bring all your relationships to the cross. Bring your relationships at work to the cross. Bring your family to the cross. In Corinth where we live, America, it's possible for a good thing like a family to become an idol. You know, trying to look perfect. There ain't no perfect families. There are no perfect marriages. There are no perfect people. This is written by a female author. It's called Confessions of a Domestic Failure. And she wrote a blog called How to Be a Mom in 2020. Here's what she said. You ready? Make sure your children's academic, emotional, psycho psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, and social needs are met while being careful not to overstimulate, underestimate, improperly medicate, helicopter, or neglect them in a screen-free, processed foods-free, plastic-free, GMO-free, body-positive, socially conscious, egalitarian, but also authoritative, nurturing, but fostering of independence, gentle, but not overly permissive, pesticide-free, two-story, multilingual home, preferably on a cul-de-sac, with a backyard and 1.5 siblings spaced at least two years apart for proper development. Then she adds this, how to be a mom in literally every generation before ours. Feed them sometimes. <laughs> See, killing it is killing us. It's killing parents. It's killing moms. It's killing kids. And we're going to be people of the cross. That's this week. Do a cross thing at home if you don't usually do it. Take the low place. Vacuum the floor, fix a meal, do the wash, run an errand, do it under the cross. At work this week, let somebody else shine. Let them have the credit. If there is relational heartbreak in your world, probably for some, bring it to the cross. Ask God for help. And when you mess up, and you will, remember the greatest power you have in your life is not your IQ or your charm or your persistence, strong and great as it might be. The only power that will heal this broken world is the power of the cross. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit SummitSA.com.